Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Before we get started with today's session, I wanted to share a really amazing resource with you. A question that everyone has, a problem that everybody deals with is, how do I focus within my prayer? How do I enjoy my salah? Well, the answer to that question, the solution to that problem is actually quite straightforward and simple. If we understand what we say within our prayer, we'll be able to focus on it, internalize it, and actually get back to enjoying our conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We created a solution to make this possible. It's called Meaningful Prayer. This is a course, a curriculum, a seminar, a workshop that I taught in over a hundred locations all across this country and even in other countries. Tens of thousands of people have taken this course and it has really turned around, transformed their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well now, inshallah, you can take the Meaningful Prayer course online. You can take it according to your own schedule, at your own leisure. You can pace yourself. You can go back and review lessons multiple times to really be able to internalize them. Go to MeaningfulPrayer.com to sign up. Share this resource with others so that we can get back to not only just offering our prayers or performing our salah, but we can go back to experiencing a conversation and relationship with Allah. Now, to get on to today's session, inshallah, we're going to be covering the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. The following session was recorded at the Seerah Intensive. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi wa kafaa wa salamun ala ibadihin ladhin astafa, khususan ala sayyidi rusuli wa khatami l-anbiya, wa ala alihi l-askiya wa ashabihi l-atqiya, amma ba'd. باب ما جاء في فراش رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. The chapter on the bed of the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم. حدثنا علي بن حجر قال حدثنا علي بن مسهر عن هشام بن عروة عن أبيه عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت إنما كان فراش رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الذي ينام عليه من أدم so this chapter we're covering is regarding the bed of the Prophet And this is the interesting thing about the study of the Shama'il, that it gives you a personal tour of the life of the Prophet Sometimes you'll be looking at his description, his physical features, while at other times you'll be looking into the house of the Prophet ﷺ. Sometimes you'll be looking into the kitchen and then realizing that the kitchen was his living room, which was his bedroom, which was his house. And then at times you're looking into the characteristics of the Prophet ﷺ up close through the eyes of his companions and his wives, his humbleness, his crying, the Prophet's uh, his preferences, the types of food he liked. The Shama'il is a very beautiful study of the Prophet ﷺ. I would say, along with the Sirah, the Shama'il is kind of like peanut butter and jelly. They just have to be together, you know? You can do both independently, but both together just really take it to a whole different level. So in today's class, we're going to be discussing the first hadith. We have two hadith to cover today. The first hadith leads us to the bed of the Prophet ﷺ. This hadith is narrated by Aisha radiallahu anha. Aisha radiallahu anha is the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and who better to tell us about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's personal life than her So she says while describing the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam inma kana firashu rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam alladhi yanamu alayhi min adam that the bed on which the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was slept was slept was made of leather now when you look at the linguistic composure of this hadith right here, notice that the first word in her statement is innama. What's the first word there? Innama. Innama in the Arabic language comes for hasr. Hasr. Ha-sad-ra. Hasr. Hasr means to limit something. Okay? So for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءُ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is restricted and limited to those people who have knowledge. 
Because a person who has knowledge will know what it means to be fearful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But a person who doesn't have knowledge, they may think the actions they're doing lead them to the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but in reality they don't. So think of innama to be translated in English as only. It's exclusive, it creates exclusivity. Now Aisha radiallahu anha says, innama kana firashu rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that indeed, the only thing the Prophet would sleep on was made of leather. So the first thing we need to learn and understand is that Aisha is making the statement of exclusivity when there are narrations that tell us that the Prophet slept on different materials. And the symbolist is that sometimes the Prophet would sleep on leather, sometimes the Prophet would sleep on a fil- uh, like a like a quilt, but rather than having cotton in there, there would be, um, like here to it actually says, Hashwuhu Leafun. This is an example of that. Sometimes he would only sleep on leather, but sometimes the leather would have something in it. Hashwuhu means like a filling, and Leafun is like the, um, the, 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 the part of the palm tree that falls down. So a mix of branches and leaves and everything that's, that just falls off, that just sheds off of the tree, all of that would be gathered together and put inside. And then there are some narrations that the Prophet ﷺ would actually just sleep on the ground. He would be lying on the ground. Then we have another narration that the Prophet ﷺ, one day when he was lying down, he was lying down on a straw mat. So there are different things the Prophet ﷺ did lie on. So why is Aisha anha then saying, Innama, if we know the Prophet ﷺ did lie on uh, different materials? Well, the reason is because it's possible that when she's saying innama, she's trying to go exclusive, she's saying, in my house. That when we were in my house, I only, the, only saw the Prophet ﷺ lying on a leather, mat, uh, a leather skin that had a filling of um, the, the shavings of, um, of, of the palm tree. Or it could be that, possi- that it could, another possibility could be that she's saying innama only exclusively while in her mind keeping the intent of majority of the time. You guys understand that? While in her mind keeping the intent majority of the time. It's kind of like someone that comes to you and says, hey, what do you have for breakfast? And you say, eggs. I only have eggs. But in reality, even though that's majority of what you eat, you might have coffee with it too. Or maybe you might eat eggs 28 days out of the month, but maybe the 29th and 30th day you might have something else. So it's kind of like she's uh, saying majority of the time this is... The, the sort of the spread the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam would uh, sleep upon. Now, when we look at this sleeping habit of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, what the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam would sleep upon, there's a few lessons that we learn. The first lesson and the most obvious lesson that we can take home is the simplicity of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. How the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did not engage in extra luxury. There's an element of luxury that a human being may need. But then there is that luxury which is actually beyond you. And the nature of luxury is that once you adopt a little of it, you'll have to take the next part. And then when you take the next part, you'll need the part after that. It's kind of like this greed effect, that the more, the more you take luxury, the more you'll need it. The more you take it, kind of like painkillers. The more you take it, the more you'll need it. The more you take it, the more you need it. Until you're lost in luxury. That's why in one narration, the Prophet ﷺ said, be aware of living a, a super luxurious life. Don't be that person who everything has to be luxury about. Every seat you sit in, every garment you wear, everything that makes contact with your body, everything you make contact with, it has to be premium and ultra luxurious. Be aware of living an ultra, an extra, super luxurious life. For the true servants of Allah, don't take all of their luxury in this world. They save some of it for the hereafter too. And you'll see this in the lives of the companions. Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anh, during his khilafah, he would spend the day hours serving people, taking care of their affairs, working through the registry, making sure everything was in the right place at the right time. You know, he had a lot of management to do. One day he told one of his servants that, I'm really thirsty, can you please get a cup of water? So the servant thought to himself, Umar radiallahu anh has been working all day, he must be so exhausted, the heat, and he's taking care of the affairs of the Muslims. So let me do him one up, rather than just getting him a cup of water, I'll give him a cup of Kool-Aid. 
So he got a cold cup of water, took a spoon of honey and mixed it in there. And he brought it back to Umar radiallahu anh. Umar radiallahu anh was given the water. He was just about to drink it and then he smelt the honey. And he put the cup down and he started crying. And his servant asked him, Amir al-Mu'mineen, what makes you cry? And Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anh responded back by saying, I worry that what if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to me on the Day of Judgment, أَذْهَبْتُمْ طَيِّبَاتِكُمْ فِي حَيَاتِكُمُ الدُّنْيَا وَاسْتَمْتَعْتُمْ بِهَا فَالْيَوْمَ تُجْزَوْنَ عَذَابَ الْهُونَ That you've taken all your luxuries in the world, now there's no luxury for you in the hereafter. Now you have the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Aisha radiallahu anha, she used to always read the ayah and cry, وَبَدَالَهُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ مَا لَمْ يَكُونُ يَحْتَسِبُونَ that today they face that which they had no imagination of, that they never thought they would face this, but today they have to face this. So the companions, there was a part of them living, and even the Prophet ﷺ, there was a part of this struggle. Some people, they say that the struggle of the Prophet ﷺ was majburi. You guys know the concept of majburi? It was forced upon him. He had no other option. It's kind of like saying he, he didn't have access to wealth. He had to live a life of poverty. This isn't true. Had the Prophet of Allah ﷺ asked Allah to make the matters easy on him, when we ask Allah, Allah gives us wealth, you don't think He would have given it to His Prophet? If losers like us can make dua to Allah, sinners like us can say, Ya Allah, give me, uh, give me so-and-so house, or give me so-and-so car, or give me so-and-so style of luxurious wedding. If we can ask Allah for wealth and Allah gives it to us, you don't think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would give it to His beloved Messenger ﷺ? Of course He would. The Prophet ﷺ chose this life. There's a narration that someone asked, O Messenger of Allah, why don't you ask Allah to give you wealth? And the Prophet ﷺ said, I prefer to live a life of struggle. So one day I can eat and one day I can fast, so I can be thankful and also be patient in front of Allah ﷻ. There's a balance between both. Some days I'm thankful to Allah, some days I'm patient in front of Allah ﷻ. So the Prophet ﷺ adopted an immense amount of simplicity. And this brought a struggle with it. Now there is this tough time that we have balancing between what is healthy luxury and what is not healthy luxury. Would you guys agree? There's this idea that at what point is luxury healthy for me and at what point is luxury not healthy for me? There was a similar question once asked to a scholar from India, Sheikh Ashraf Ali. Someone asked him, Sheikh, he, he, he phrased the question in a different angle. So I want to first address his question and answer, then I'll come back to this question. He said to him, Sheikh, what are your thoughts on buying, I'm rephrasing the question, by the way, to make it relevant to you. What are your thoughts on buying a $10,000 suit? Is it permissible or not? Yes or no? Ah, very good. Second year student. She knows how to answer me. It depends, you're right. For those of you who said yes, it's permissible, wrong. Those of you who said no, it's not permissible, what's the answer there? It's wrong again. It depends. It depends on what? It depends on the intent behind buying that and whether it's in your means or not. So there's two elements to it. First of all, is it in your means? How do you define your means? So are your wajibat and fara'id taken care of? Wajibat and fara'id, there are those fara'id, those obligations that, that relate to your wealth that are revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So for example, you're giving of zakat. Financially providing for people who you are responsible financially providing for. You can't be driving like a $100,000 car while your mother or father who don't have a means of earning money are not taken care of. That's Islamically not permissible. They become your responsibility. You need to look after them. And vice versa, parents are responsible looking after their kids. So there are certain responsibilities that are by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given. And then there are certain responsibilities that come on to you because of certain actions you've done. So for example, you've taken a loan from someone. Now you need to pay that person back because of your action of taking money from them. Or itilaful mal, you destroyed someone's wealth. You did not have to give them money, but because you harm them, now it's your responsibility to give them money back. If you owe someone money, hear me out guys, okay? If you owe someone $20,000, maybe it's not a smart idea to book a flight and go to Pakistan to go shopping for your wedding. Maybe the smarter idea for you is to cut down the expenses, loosen up your finances. If you have liquid cash, go and pay back the people who you've borrowed money from. Because the person that gave you that money had a lot of trust in you. And at this point, you're destroying their trust. And at this point, you are a transgressor. 
The Prophet says, Matlul ghani yudhulm. That the delaying, the delaying of payment for a wealthy person is oppression. Matlul ghani yudhulm. The delaying of payment for a wealthy person is oppression. If you have money, you take it, you go pay back. That's that element of it. Then the second part of it, so Shaykh said there are two elements to it. The first is that, can you afford it? Okay, so you've paid off your zakat, you've given your sadaqah, you've taken care of everything, and yet Allah has given you just so much wealth, now you have surplus amount and you'd like to buy. Just because you have a lot of money still doesn't make it permissible. Now we have to ask the intent behind buying it. This is the second question. What's the intent behind buying it? So that at that point, he said there are three intents that you can have. He used three Persian words. Words: Zebaish, Araish, Numaish. Zebaish, Araish, Numaish. Zebaish, Zeb. Anyone know what that means? Zebun Nisa. Beautiful for beautifying. The reason why you're buying this particular pair of shoes, or the reason why you're buying this necklace, or whatever it is that you're buying, is because it makes you look beautiful. There's nothing wrong with buying that if you can afford it then. If it's in, within your means, there's nothing wrong with you buying that because the deen is not against you looking beautiful. In Allah Ta'ala Jamilun Yuhibbul Jamal. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beautiful and He loves beauty. The second intention is Araish, Aram, which means for comfort purposes. The reason why you're buying this car is because it has a comfortable seat. Right? Have you guys seen that new thing that uh, Nissan has these days? The Altima? Zero gravity? It's all bakwas. If there is any car that has zero gravity, it should give you a death certificate with it. Because in order for you to be driving at zero gravity, you've got to be lying down. Your, your spine should have no weight on it at all. It's all gimmicks. But anyway, if you fall for it, alhamd, you know? If you're buying, paying an extra $10,000, $20,000, and by the way, this is, I'm just messing around with you. It, legitimately, if you feel that this car or this pair of socks or this fabric is more comfortable to your body and you need it, go ahead, purchase it. And, oh God, Nissan's going to come after me now. <laughs> Nissan, Nissan's going to be really angry that I just ripped them out in the lecture. I hope no one, I hope no one uh, conveys my message to them. Or, the third, the third so the first was Zeba'ish, uh, Ara'ish, comfort and beauty. Both are permissible. The third one which is not permissible is Numa'ish. What does Numa mean? To showing off, to show off. You know, to put, some other, put someone else down. And believe it or not, in today's world, if you really dig down into this, this monster that we've given birth to of consumerism within every human being, that's at the core of it. This is actually what's at the core of most of it. People aren't content with what they have because they have to prove that they are better than other people. You are judged in society for your worth based off of what you own. People don't care about the person inside you anymore. We live in a hypersexual, hyper-consumerist environment where it's all about the external, what happens inside, what kind of brains a person has, what kind of character they have. You know, my teacher used to say, if the, if the Prophet of Allah was born in the West, no one would even turn their eye towards him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, because he wasn't a wealthy person. You know, in our community, we give attention to those people who have wealth, people who drive nice cars and fancy shamansi houses. The Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, chose a simple life. So, if you're buying it with the intent of showing off, then it becomes haram altogether. Now coming back here. So that was one element of his answer. Now I want to come back to the question here. What is the ruling? Or where is luxury permitted and where is it not permitted? Well, at what point does luxury become not recommended anymore? By the way, let me tell you one more thing. Where it may be permissible for you to buy that, buy that $10,000 suit. What did I say? Where it may be permissible for you to buy that $10,000 suit, does not mean it's recommended, by the way. It doesn't mean it's recommended, you know. There are some people, honestly, Allah has given them so much wealth, mashallah, but a point comes in their life where they actually have no idea what to do with their money. They just don't know what to do with their money anymore. There was one brother, he said to me, Shaykh, let me show you my house. I went to his house. I kid you not, at the end of it, I thought this person was just lost. He didn't know what to do with his money anymore. He says to me, Shaykh, you see the washrooms I have here? Every washroom was, I, I'm, I'm quoting him, every washroom in my house was imported from another, another continent. Not another country, what did I say? Even though they all have the same function, you know? But just khamakha, just for the sake of it, you know, so I can tell people that, you know what, I, I imported 
toilets from different continents of the world. He took me to this clock and said, Sheikh, guess how much I bought this clock for? I said, I have no idea. Like, probably something really expensive. The one I'd buy from Walmart would probably be 100 bucks. Bed Bath & Beyond, 200 bucks. I don't know, how much is this one right here? $10,000. $10,000. And I kid you not, I couldn't tell the time on that clock. It was so sophisticated. I mean, that's the purpose behind it, right? It's very sophisticated. It requires a brain to read that clock and a brain that I didn't have or cells that I didn't want to donate in that cause. So even if, it, even if there is permission in the deen of living a luxurious life, it's definitely not recommended. The Prophet ﷺ didn't like it. Once he was walking in Medina Munawwara ﷺ and he saw a person who built a two-story building. The Prophet ﷺ inquired, whose house is this? They said, our Messenger of Allah belongs to so-and-so person. The Prophet ﷺ went back and the next, the, the, maybe the same day or next day that Sahabi came and greeted the Prophet ﷺ. And when he greeted the Prophet of Allah, the Prophet ﷺ turned his face away. He didn't reply to his salam. Then he greeted him again, the Prophet ﷺ turned his face away and didn't reply to his salam. This man then asked the other companions, why is the Prophet not responding to my salam? It's as if he's upset with me. They said, earlier the Prophet went for a stroll and he saw this two-story building and the Prophet didn't like it. You know what he did to that building? Take a wild guess. He knocked it down. He demolished it. He demolished his two-story building. He said that, if this building brings anger or displeasure to the Prophet ﷺ, I don't want it. And the Prophet ﷺ then spoke to the companions and said to them that if a person needs... I mean, you have to understand, two-story building, the reason why the Prophet ﷺ didn't like it is because in Medina Munawwara, there was scope to build wider buildings as opposed to taller buildings. If you can choose between wider and taller buildings, the Prophet's preference was that it remains on one floor wider as opposed to you going taller. Because when you go taller, then it becomes a matter of fakhr a matter of pride that I've built taller. And then the person next to you wants to build three stories and four stories. And before you know it, we have a gulf. Where now everyone's competing with each other who can build the tallest building. Uh, again, the whole thing, you have so much money where you don't know what to do anymore. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't like that. He's telling, the, he's telling the companions that you don't build beyond that. There's one narration in which the Prophet ﷺ told the companions, never get invested, never sell yourself to becoming... Uh, uh, a property tycoon. You know people who just keep buying properties, 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 properties. There's a karaha in this. The Prophet ﷺ actually disliked this in another narration. And one sahabi asked why, and the Prophet ﷺ said, because it puts a seed of love in the dunya in your, in your heart that's very hard to take out then. What was that, sorry? What's the hadith? I'm thinking of it. Let me think about it. I have it in my mind, it just slipped me. If I can, if I can recall it by the end of the class, I'll remind you. Yes. Sitting on property, just sitting on property, buying and buying and buying and just sitting on a lot of property. Um, if you're renting it out as a business, then that's a, that's a business for you. I'm talking about buying property and just just sitting on it. You know, some people they just buy and sit on it. That's what the Prophet ﷺ disliked. And there is a lot more sharah to it. If a person's doing it as a legitimate business, if that's their way, like for example, flipping homes or doing an Airbnb. Um, or doing um, just renting your properties out. That's another thing. Um, if I can remember that hadith, I'll share with you guys and we'll, maybe we'll discuss it. But if a person wishes to live a luxurious life, at what point is it not liked anymore? Where it becomes karaha, makru, dislike, where you need to step away from that lifestyle. So the scholars, they say, it come, when your luxury reaches the point that it begins to pull you away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and to fulfill your obligations to your deen. And it'll do, it'll do that to you. You know, that's what it does to you. You'll just get so caught in your comfortable chair, your, uh, your lazy couches, and you know, your nice, comfortable, warm blankets, and you just get so lost with your shopping, then you end up losing sight on your obligations ahead of you. And Islam is constantly reminding us not to become materialist people. There's one hadith... Uh, According to some narrations, it's marfu', meaning it's narrated from the Prophet ﷺ. And according to other narrations, it's mawkufa on Abu Darda radiallahu anh, meaning this is a statement of Abu Darda radiallahu Where he told his students, he told his companions, dunya mudbiratan, mukhbilatan, min with the akhirah, the hereafter in front of you, and with the world and its pleasures behind you. 
You know when you're driving a car on the highway, which direction is your sight? In front of you. You keep your hands on the car, on the, on the steering wheel, and you drive. If by chance you need to get something, you will reach back, ask someone else to get it for you first. You'll tell hey, can you get something for me? If no one else is there, maybe you'll keep your eyes on the road, try to see if you can reach back there while keeping your eyes on the akhirah, being focused there. You reach back into the dunya, get whatever you need so you can move forward. If you really must, then you pull over to the side. For a few moments, you go pull out whatever you need from the back seat and back on your journey. How foolish would the person be who's looking for a pop can in the back seat in the middle, on the, on, on, you know, in the middle of nowhere on Highway 55 and just pulls the car on the shoulder and says, oh, this back seat, it's so pleasurable. I'm just going to, this is it. I'm not going to anywhere, wherever I was supposed to go. I'm just, it's me in my back seat now. And that person becomes like, you know, a gypsy. No person would, would have any praise for that sort of an, that sort of an attitude. Keep your akhirah in front of you. Uh, and keep the dunya. When I say dunya, I'm talking about those pleasures of the world that turn you away from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Keep them behind you. Turn to them when in necessity, but don't make them your goal of living. Because the two, the dunya and the akhirah, this world and the hereafter, both have their servants and slaves. Be the slaves of the hereafter. Don't be the slaves of this world. Because today you can do whatever you want and there's no accounting. But tomorrow there will be accounting and you won't get a chance to do good deeds anymore. Focus on your good deeds today. Now another thing, actually let's read the next hadith and then after that I will um, link in the second point that I wanted to make. Haddathana Abu al-Khattab Ziyad ibn Yahya al-Basri قال حدثنا عبد الله بن ميمون قال حدثنا جعفر ابن محمد عن أبيه قال سئلت عائشة رضي الله عنها وسئلت حفصة رضي الله عنها ما كان فراش رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في بيتك قالت مسحا نثنيه فنيتين فينام عليه فلما كان ذات ليلة قلت لو ثنيته أربع ثنيات لكان أوطأ له فثنيناه له بأربع ثنيات فلما أصبح قال ما فرشتم لي الليلة قالت قلنا هو فراشك إلا أن ثنيناه بأربع ثنيات قلنا هو أوطأ لك قال ردوه لحالته الأولى فَإِنَّهُ مَنَعَتْنِي وِطَاءَتُهُ صَلَاتِيَ اللَّيْلَ So this hadith is narrated by Aisha radiallahu anha. And also, the, the narration that we're going to come to Aisha radiallahu anha, this very same question was also, that Aisha radiallahu anha will be asked, this very same question was also asked to Hafsa radiallahu anha. So if you look in the Arabi here, it says, عَنْ أَبِيهِ in the third line, قَالَ سُئِلَتْ Aishatu wa su'ilat hafsatu. It has both, both of his wives there. It says that this question was asked to Aisha radiallahu anha. And it was also asked to Hafsa radiallahu anha. Hafsa radiallahu anha, how is she related to the Prophet of Allah? She's his wife. Whose daughter is she? Umar radiallahu anha. Aisha radiallahu anha, how is she married to the Prophet His wife, the daughter of? Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anha. So Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anha and Umar radiallahu anha were both the father-in-laws of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uthman and Ali radiyallahu anhuma were both the son-in-laws of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So they asked. They said, "How was the bed of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam in your home?" She replied, "It was made of leather, in which was filled the coir of the date palm." Hafsa radiyallahu anha was also asked, "How was the bed of the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam in your home?" She replied. It was a canvas folded into two, which was a spread of the, for the Messenger وسلم, to sleep on. On one night, I folded it into four and spread it so it would become softer. I folded it and spread it that way. In the morning, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, asked, What did you spread for me last night? I replied, It was the same bed. I only folded, folded it into four so that it may become softer. The Messenger of Allah said, 
leave it in its original form, its softness deprived me of my prayers at night, meaning tahajjud salah. So in this hadith, what's happening here is that, what is the Prophet's bed again? One thin spread, like a little, if you want to call it a blanket, if you want to, a thin one, not, don't think of your fluffy, furry, quilt, um, comforter stuff. Don't think of that. That's not what we're talking about here at all. Okay? That was like unimaginable. We're talking about just a thin blanket. The Prophet would generally sleep on that. One night, Hafsa thought to herself that we fold this blanket into half and we have some extra space by the Prophet's feet. There's still more space there. How about I fold it one more time? So she folded it one more time. But when she folded it one more time and the Prophet slept that night, he woke up in the morning and said, what did you guys do to my bed? They said, a messenger of Allah, nothing. We just folded it one more time. It's the same bed that you always sleep on. The Prophet ﷺ said, that you folding it one more time almost caused me to miss my salah. The, the, softness of, the softness of the bed was a hindrance in waking up for prayer. Have any of you guys ever done i'tikaf in a masjid before? Yeah? You know, you're, you're in the masjid, qiyamul layl, or maybe you're traveling somewhere and you, you spend a night in the masjid. Or maybe you're in the masjid and you just decide to take a one hour nap because there's like an hour left before someone picks you up or, be, hour, or you got there an hour before class. When you sleep on the ground, how comfortable do you get into your sleep? Not comfortable at all. When I sleep in the masjid, and I'm, and I, and when, I, when I would do i'tikaf and I would sleep in the masjid, I would think to myself, Ya Allah, when will the mu'adhan call the adhan? <laughs> can, can fajr start already? On the other hand, when you're sleeping in your bed, you, can, you think to yourself, when will the mu'adhan stop calling the adhan? I'm enjoying the sleep too much. I don't want someone to wake me up. I'm enjoying it too much. It's so comfortable. And the level of luxury that we have in our beds is ridiculous. Have you guys seen that purple mattress? The one that they have this crazy marketing campaign on Facebook. It's known as one of the most successful marketing campaigns of a mattress ever. You guys haven't seen the purple mattress? I'm sure you guys have seen it. It's got like probably over 100 million views. The way they market these things, I was looking at it and I was thinking to myself, man, I need a purple mattress. <laughs> Even though what I have is alhamdulillah, you know? It's very, and then you have the, the ones with the pillow tops, you know, the pillow cushion on the top of it. Then you have memory foam, then you have the one that has his and hers different settings. You get to control the temperature of your bed. And some of them, the top of the bed turns into a um, heating blanket. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then you can choose how high your feet will be, how low your back will be. It's a miracle if you wake up for Fajr Salah. It'll be a miracle if you wake up. If you're really struggling with your Salah, minimize your comfort a little bit. Ask yourself, where can I cut back on my comfort? Don't keep looking for more and more luxury. Find a way to cut back. If you don't trust me, sleep on the ground, not in your hotel. Those grounds are nasty. <laughs> um, but when you go back home, sleep on your ground for a night or two, and I'm telling you, like, you'll feel fresher most likely, and probably the first day your back will hurt a little, but you'll get used to it, and you'll notice that you don't need to sleep as much as you think you need to sleep. Another thing that you'll notice, you know, when I, when I, in my home, when I was in Chicago, one of the things that we never did was we never put up blinds, we never put up blinds in our homes. And we never had thick curtains. I used to only keep sheer, just so that no one can see what's happening inside, just for privacy purposes. And the idea was that when the sun comes up, everyone in the house wakes up. That's it. When the sun goes down, you go to sleep. When the sun wakes up, everyone wakes up. Nobody sleeps through 12 o'clock and 11 o'clock, uh, you know, and 2, 3 o'clock. And some people, they like, there was one friend of ours, when, I, when we were in Madrasa, he was from New Zealand. We used to call him Kiwi. Um, he literally went to sleep like on Thursday or Friday and woke up on Sunday or Monday. <laughs> it's like copy and paste gone bad. Cut and paste. He had cut and forgot to paste it back. Two days of his life were just khalas, khatam. They didn't come back. Some people, they sleep so much. And it's not a healthy thing. Imam Ghazali ta'ala says that if you sleep eight hours every day, at the age of 60, you slept for 20 years of your life. Makes sense, right? Eight is one-third of 24, 24 hours in a day. If you sleep eight hours a day, what's one-third of 60 years? 20 years. You've slept for 60 years of your, 20 years of your life. When are you going to do good deeds? And out of that one-third, you're probably going to spend working. And then another one, you know, what's of, what, of the third that's left, you probably spend one-third playing. And then, you know, by the time it comes to it, that you only have a few hours of ibadah to even present to Allah out of 60, 70, 80 years of your life. Imam Ghazali, when he talks about sleep, 
he refers to it as a hindrance to life. No, a disruption to life. What does he call it? He says, he says sleeping is a disruption to being awake. When he, when he uses that language, he calls it, he calls it ta'til, where you're kind of canceling it out. Such an interesting language. Because, you know, when it comes, I'll be honest with you guys, when it comes to me, when it, as the hours get closer for me to sleep, my heart starts getting lighter and lighter and lighter. Mentally, I start feeling more relaxed. I get more happy knowing that I'm very close to being home. I'll be on my bed. I'll relax. Imam Ghazali is saying that in our generation, the closer we got to sleep, the more frustrated we got. Because we wanted to be awake to do more ibadah. It was like a barrier. It was a disturbance in our, in our life. Going to sleep. It was a burden upon us. And when time came for us to wake up, everyone would jump up on their feet. You know? And in our day and age, when, as the time gets closer to go to sleep, we start thinking to ourselves, okay, uh, 10 o'clock, I've already had my meal, get into my PJs, binge for another two hours, get in my bed, crash out, sleep for like eight, nine hours. You know the excitement that comes with me, me describing it? Some of you guys are smiling already, mashallah. <laughs> and then when I tell you, you have to wake up 5 a.m. in the morning, stress. And then you have to drive half an hour, more stress. Attend class for eight hours, more stress. You, you guys see that? We, it's like waking up is a disturbance to us. And going to sleep is the, it's a, it's a convenience, that's the comfort. While Imam Ghazali rahmatullahi is saying there was a nation where that was the other way around. For them, waking up was joy. They enjoyed it so much. They enjoyed listening to the mu'adhin saying, As-salatu khayrun minan They enjoyed the mu'adhin saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, because what they were going to, they enjoyed it so much. And if you don't believe this is a, this is possibility, you know kids, when they wake up in the morning, how happy they are? The, the younger kids, I'm talking about the five, six-year-old kids. You know when you tell them, come on, wake up, it's school time, what happens to them? They jump to their feet right away. In the washroom, before they even brush their teeth, they're ready to run out of the door. And then you have to go tell them, no, go back. You know, we can't leave the house that quickly. Because they have an excitement. There are people they want to meet. There are things they want to do. There are things they want to accomplish. There's a joy to it. There's a joy to life. So learn to minimize your luxury. Try to cut it down. Ask yourself, where can I back, cut back on my luxury? Maybe my comfort, my, my comfort is too luxurious. Maybe my mattress needs to go down a notch or two. Maybe I should test it. It may or may not work. I'm not saying to hurt yourself. That's not what we're advocating for here. But learn to cut back on your luxury. Now, I'll come to you in a moment. I just want to make a few points. There's one or two things. I'll... Actually, go ahead. Let's take your, your point. Is there any significance in the Prophet ﷺ having different mattresses in different wives' homes? They used what they had. You understand that? The Prophet ﷺ, when it came to his possessions, he wasn't like a picky Amazon shopper, where everything had to be from one company, one color, one style. In Medina Munawwara, most of it was what? You took, you took what you had. One time someone came to my teacher's teacher, Sheikh Zakaria, rahimahullah ta'ala, and asked him, is it sunnah to start your meal with something sweet or something salty? Because there are both narrations. Some narrations say the Prophet ﷺ started his meal with something salty. And some narrations say he started his meal with something sweet. So someone asked Shaykh al-Hadith, Shaykh Zakaria, rahimahullah ta'ala, is it sunnah to start the meal with something? Meeti chi say and amkin chi say. This is an Urdu question. And the answer is in Urdu. So then I'll translate it in English. He goes, Hazrat, khana namkin chi se shuru karna chahiye, meeti chi se. He said to him, faqa sunnat hai. You're asking me, you know, he asked him, is it sunnah to start your meal with something sweet or something salty? He said, you want to know the real sunnah? Starvation. That's the sunnah. Not like, should I have a pazuki or should I have like, you know, samosas? <laughs> Neither. If you have it, alhamdulillah, you take it. If it's there in front of you, you take it. You don't do, like, you know, you don't turn away from the, the, the favor of Allah. You don't do kufran and ni'mah. But when it came to the Prophet ﷺ, what the Prophet ﷺ wore, it was what was available. Do you guys understand that? That's what was available. That's what the Prophet ﷺ would wear. His slippers, what was available. That's what the Prophet ﷺ would have. His personal belongings, most of it was what? What was available, that's what the Prophet ﷺ took. You didn't find in his house that he had like, you know, exquisite things from across the world, these infomercial um, gadgets lying around his house. That wasn't the Prophet ﷺ. 
In one narration, Umar radiallahu Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anh says, I came to the house of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and all I saw was a mattress and a water jug. That was everything that he had in that house. That's everything that he had. In order to understand the simplicity of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, I'll share one thing with you all. One hadith actually, one narration. There is a companion of the Prophet ﷺ by the name of Umar ibn al-Khattab. You've all heard of him before. Someone very close to the Prophet ﷺ. According to some narrations, he was the 40th person to accept Islam. At distance, he's also a relative of the Prophet ﷺ, I mean from his lineage. And obviously he marries the Prophet's daughter. So one day, Umar ﷺ, he went to Hafsa anha. Someone came and told Umar an that the Prophet ﷺ had a quarrel and disagreement with some of his wives. And the disagreement has prolonged. And people are chatting and they're talking about maybe the Prophet may have divorced his wives. So that rumor started spreading in Medina. When it reached Umar an's ears that the Prophet may have divorced his wives, he kind of had a panic attack. Because one of the Prophet's wives was his daughter, Hafsa, the one who's narrating this hadith. Hafsa radiallahu anha. So he got up from there and ran. And he went to, by the way, the Prophet ﷺ, during this period, he had a separation with all of his wives for roughly a month. Roughly a month, the Prophet ﷺ, he took separation from his wives. Which is very interesting because it shows us how the Prophet ﷺ was a human being. He had struggles in his marriage. Not once, but many times. Having struggles doesn't show a weak person, but dealing with your struggles properly shows you truly a strong person. And the Prophet ﷺ was separated from them. Umar runs to Hafsa's house and says, Is it true the Prophet has divorced his wives? She says to him, This is an internal affair between us and the Prophets. We prefer that you guys stay out of it. <laughs> and Umar says, Oh, so that's how it's happening here. You know what? I'm going to go and ask the Prophet himself. He comes to the house where the Prophet was staying. The Prophet was on the upper floor. At the bottom of the staircase, there was one Sahabi there. The Prophet told that Sahabi, don't let anyone up. So Umar came, he told that person, I want to go up to meet the Prophet. That Sahabi said, the Prophet said, nobody goes up. He said, why don't you go tell the Prophet it's Umar, and the Prophet will make an exception. So he went up and said, our Messenger of Allah, Umar is here. The Prophet stayed quiet. He came back down and said, the Prophet didn't say yes, so you can't go up. He said, ask one more time. He went up again, came back down, the Prophet's quiet. Umar radiallahu anh, on the third time, he, he shouted himself, O Messenger of Allah, it's me. The Prophet wasallam said, okay, let him come up. So Umar radiallahu anh came up. When he came up, the Prophet wasallam sat straight. He was lying down. He sat up. And at that time, the Prophet was lying on a straw mat, which, led, which left imprints on his shoulder. The straw mat left imprints on his shoulder. And Umar radiallahu anh, he started crying. And he said, O Messenger of Allah, Look at the Roman and Persian kings. They're lying on comfortable beds, enjoying themselves. And here you are. You have these marks in your shoulder because of your sleeping. You know, you were just lying down. And the Prophet ﷺ says, In one narration, he said to him, Anta ya Umar, which means even you, Umar, even you've started judging the success of a person based off of what kind of bed they sleep on. And then he said to him, Oh, Umar. Does it not please you that Allah gives them luxuries in this world and gives us luxury in the hereafter? We'll take the luxuries then. A little struggle today? No problem. We'll take the luxury then, inshallah, Aziz. And it shows you the simplicity of the Prophet ﷺ. You know, how the Prophet ﷺ desired this. And Umar himself adopted this, by the way. Not only him, all of his companions. You'll find narrations of Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, all of them. When they needed to sleep, they would just come to the masjid, lie down and go to sleep. There's one sahabi, he says, I saw the Prophet ﷺ sleeping in the masjid, mustalqiyan, while his neck was flat on the ground. So the Prophet was lying on his back. And the Prophet crossed one foot over the other foot. Right? He crossed one foot over the other foot and he was lying there. And Umar was known for this. He, used to take his, he would take his afternoon nap in the masjid itself. One time, some Persian generals came to meet him and they said, we want to meet your leader. And they walked into the masjid and they took him. He was lying in the corner of the masjid sleeping. They said, this guy's your leader? He's the guy whose armies are like shaking down the Roman and Persian empires? Like, that's it? This is the guy right here? And they said, yep, this is the guy right here. See, these people, someone asked Umar 
how do you sleep without any protection? How do you walk around? Because he didn't have any guard that would stand with him and protect him from people. He would say, I don't need any protection because it's in the best interest of the people that I stay alive. So every Muslim in Medina Munawwara is my bodyguard because they all want me to stay alive because they know I'm a just person. As long as I'm alive, they'll find justice. As long as I'm alive, they'll find simplicity. They'll find... And Umar radiallahu anhu, the Sahaba, they were very wary of these luxurious lives. You know when the wealth came from Persia? When all the wealth came from Persia to Medina Munawwara, it was piled in front of Umar radiallahu anhu. It was like a little mountain, a little hill. And Umar radiallahu anhu was walking around it right before he distributed it and he was crying. He had tears in his eyes. And someone said to him, Al-Yawm Yawm Al-Farah. Today is a day, of, a day of joy. Why are you crying? So Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu said, Inna hadha al-mal lam yu'tihi allahu qawman illa alqallahu baynahum al-adawata wal-baghda. My experience and my study of humanity shows that wherever wealth comes, two hearts will always separate. They can't get close to one another. Rivalry will come, animosity will come, hatred will come. And the simplicity and the beauty of Medina Munawwara won't ever be like this anymore. Medina Munawwara will change after we distribute this wealth. The people of Medina Munawwara will be very different people. So the Prophet ﷺ, as we learn here, his bed was very simple. It was folded twice. The Prophet ﷺ said that it prevented me from um, praying my salah. Now one thing I want to mention, that the second hadith that we read right here, this hadith is actually a weak narration. Right? Just because it's a weak narration doesn't mean we need to discard it. But for your reference, it's good to note down that the second hadith we read here, um, the muhadithin, not only have they classed it as weak, but they actually class it as isnaduhu da'if jiddan. It's a very weak narration. So just note that down in your notes so you know that when you are sharing this sort of hadith, if anything, if you need to bring it like Imam Tirmidhi did, Imam Tirmidhi ta'ala does this, where he'll bring a hadith like this that's weak, not because he didn't know it was weak, FYI, like Imam Tirmidhi knew it was weak, but the reason why he brought it in the book is because he's bringing it as a supportive narration. The first narration is an authentic narration. It's in Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi alayhi brings it himself in his, uh, in his jami'ah. The first narration, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi also brings it, Imam Muslim rahmatullahi alayhi also narrates it, Imam Abu Dawood narrates it, Imam Ibn Majah narrates it. The first narration is a very common one. So that's the foundation of the narration, of the, of the chapter, which is an authentic narration. The weak narration, he's bringing it as a support to the earlier narration. He's not using the weak narration to establish a new concept. So in that sort of a scope or that sort of a role, there's nothing wrong with having a weak narration in, uh, in the chapter. One moment. Yes? Did you say the statement, uh, again, But Allah will place hatred and animosity between them. Yes? They did. What happened with that situation? The Prophet ﷺ did. So Umar ﷺ came there because he was worried that the Prophet ﷺ divorced his wives. So Umar ﷺ, now he had to speak to the Prophet. He didn't know what to do. So what he did was he, he, said, he thought, you know what, let me say something that will lighten up the mood a little bit. He said, our Messenger of Allah, we should have stayed in Mecca because there the women weren't so feisty. <laughs> there, you know, people, different communities have different cultures. Different communities, different cultures. And it's a very natural thing. So the, the women in Makkah Mukarramah, they had a different, uh, um, different culture. And the women in Medina Munawwara had a very different culture. The women in Medina Munawwara were known for being very outspoken. In one narration, the Prophet ﷺ actually praised them for that. He said, how beautiful are the women of the Ansar. That quote-unquote modesty doesn't stop them from asking their questions. When they have their questions, they come and ask. The women of Makkah Mukarramah, they were a little shy, a little quieter. You know, it was a different culture, different, different, different society. But the women in Medina Munawwara, they have a very different approach. And when the Muslim ar- women arrived from Makkah Mukarramah to Medina Munawwara, they adopted the new culture, which is a very, it happens. If you move from one culture to another, if you move from one city to another city, the way you speak, the way you speak starts changing, you know? The way you dress, it'll start changing. The culture comes on to a person. 
One thing interesting, though, from that narration is that even though, and the Prophet ﷺ smiled, he said, yes, you're right, Omar. Things have changed since we arrived in Medina Munawwara. But the Prophet ﷺ never called out his wives for the change in attitude, if I may say. Do you understand that? He accommodated it. So when Aisha radiallahu anha takes the bowl and smashes it on the ground because another wife sends food on his day, on her day, he doesn't like lay the smackdown on her. The Prophet would never do that. But you guys understand what I'm saying. He doesn't start shouting at her and start pushing her and what are you doing and get back inside, go clean the kitchen. You know, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, rather what he does is he realizes this is her temperament. And he accepts that. He tells her to go inside. He cleans up the, the mess there. In one narration, he gave the servant some money and said, buy a bowl on the way back and give it there. Simple. You know? Allahu alam. Yes. Sure, why not? That could be a, that could be a, that could be a perspective that women were more involved in the commerce of Medina Munawwara because they were involved in farming. Men and women both used to do farming. And in Makkah Mukarrama, there was no farming; there was tijara there, and men used to do tijara. That works, sure. Anything else? Any questions before we close today? Yes. The first one is وَبَدَالَهُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ مَا لَمْ يَكُونُوا يَحْتَسِبُونَ Can someone pull it up? Maybe you can, someone can pull up the exact surah number and ayah number and um, share it. And the other one was أَذْهَبْتُمْ طَيِّبَاتِكُمْ فِي حَيَاتِكُمُ الدُّنْيَا وَاسْتَمْتَعْتُمْ بِهَا And again, someone can pull that up for me too if you don't mind. I'm sure there's hafad here. So you can pull it up inshallah and share it. Okay, inshallah, with that we'll close our gathering. Uh, tomorrow, inshallah, we'll read the next chapter. Tomorrow we have many more ahadith to cover, but again, it's such a beautiful chapter, the humility of the Prophet ﷺ. So tomorrow, inshallah, we'll cover that. Subhanallah, uh, wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahumma bihamdik, nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastafiduk wa natubu ilayk.